Hi, Proof listeners. Now, if you're looking for new bingeable shows, then check out Acorn TV. They stream award-winning TV series and movies from the UK, Ireland, Australia, and beyond. Now, if, like me, you like mysteries and good period costumes and sets, then be sure to check out the new season of Murdoch Mysteries. One bite of this and he fell ill? Sir, he positively keeled over. I mean, the whole contest had to be canceled. Proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Just go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code P-R-O-O-F, to get your first 30 days for free. After that, it's just $5.99 a month. Hi there. I've got great news. You never have to make the decision between sending flowers or delicious chocolates as a gift ever again. With Edible, you can send it all. Every order is sent direct from your local store. Edible has everything. Fresh fruit arrangements, handcrafted baked goods, and boxes of decadent chocolates. There's something for every occasion and budget. And it gets better. You can get same-day delivery or free next-day delivery. Visit edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot offer code PROOF. Picky eaters. We all know a few. Maybe you were one. I myself was one throughout my child and teen years, but that's a story for another day. Today I'm talking with Ahmed Ali Akbar. He's a journalist, host of the podcast See Something, Say Something. You should go check that out. And friend of proof. You may remember Ahmed from his story Underground Arms Trade that he did back with us in season three. It's a two-parter. And it's all about the drive and steps that are necessary to procure Pakistani mangoes here in the United States. And if you haven't listened to it, make that your next stop. All of this is to say that Ahmed is what I would call a food enthusiast. He not only loves to cook and eat, but he's really curious about the food that's in front of him. And it turns out that Ahmed, like many of us, viewed food through his childhood years a bit differently than he does today. Ahmed, uh... So would you call yourself a picky eater? I kind of would put you in a picky eater category. I contest that categorization of myself. I think I'm open to anything, but pretty much everyone in my life thinks I'm picky or I overcomplicate things or maybe even I'm pretentious. I don't know. Really? Um, There's a lot of loaded terms in there, you know? Yeah, it's tough love, but I think they appreciate it because they get to eat a lot of delicious food because of how obsessed I am with it. Not just cooking, but also taking people to eat, you know, have fun food experiences. I think sometimes the term picky eater, especially for adults, comes into play in the food world because many of us that are deemed picky. But I think it comes with this intensity um, towards food that we may have. And so we're kind of always examining it and... What people may call picky is just us calling out (laughs) the things that we know about the food. It's not necessarily a a negative, but uh, we're examining it at all times. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like this classic live to eat versus eat Mm. to live thing. That's when I was like doing this story. I was thinking about that and how my dad uh, just eats to live. And I have always been alienated by that. I don't understand like how he can just eat like a 
plate of lentils and rice every day and be happy. That would never be me. I eat something different every day, basically. And he finds that very strange that I do that. He's like, you spend too much time thinking about food. <laughs> and and what about your siblings? My siblings, I think, also care about food a lot, but apparently they think that I'm on another level. So I didn't realize that until I started doing this story and I talked to them. You're going to hear from my siblings quite a bit in the story. Uh, they think that I have a different relationship to food than they do. Fabulous. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and uh, very personal, very, very personal story for me. Well, I'm handing this one over to Ahmed now. It's his story. It's a really good one. And it's a story in which some parts just might bring back memories of your own family. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Do you love delicious seafood? Are you mindful of seafood sustainability? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares delivers premium wild-caught seafood right to your door. From high-quality Alaskan king salmon to Pacific cod and Dungeness crab, the fish is caught by a collective of trusted small boat fishermen who use methods that respect the limits of our oceans. Don't know how to cook the fish? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares has got you covered. Visit SitkaSalmonShares.com for recipes and cooking tips and to purchase your monthly share of the harvest. Proof listeners get $25 off the first month of a premium Sitka seafood share if you go to SitkaSalmonShares.com slash proof. Sitka Salmon Shares, premium wild-caught seafood delivered. In every family, there are eaters, feeders, and the neithers. You probably know the eaters, the person that jumps the line to make themselves a plate, the one with special requests, the one who counts the hours till the next meal. And the feeders are those cooking, sweating over a simmering pot, the first in the kitchen and the last to eat. Me, up until say fifth grade, I didn't eat much of anything. I was the youngest and too spoiled to feed anyone. I definitely wasn't an eater. Skin and bones, my babysitter used to call me. After dinner, my dad, not a big eater either, would pick up every single grain of rice off his plate like he was finger painting, because he believed, as Muslims, no bit should go to waste. Meanwhile, as the plates would go to the sink, my mom and sisters, the feeders and eaters, would comment on how much meat I left on even my favorite food, a drumstick of chicken. A neither. Someone who needs to be tricked, or exhausted even, into eating who won't eat unless you remind them to. That was me. I consider myself a feeder now. In fact, during the pandemic, I went home to Michigan for six months because I was worried about one thing. How will my dad feed himself? He was capable, sure, but he lived alone, and if we were all going to be miserable and stuck at home, at the very least, he could get some fresh food. I roasted whole spices, made spice mixes. I took out recipes from Bon Appetit and Food and Wine and the New York Times. I tried some classic Pakistani dishes that I rarely make at home, like handmade roti and firni, a rice pudding. But I wasn't always this way. This is the story of how a picky kid went from a neither to an eater and a feeder. Five-year-old Ahmed did not like a lot of the staple Pakistani foods my mom cooked. 
I should say that if you're not familiar with Pakistani food, it's more or less the same tradition of cooking as the North Indian style that most Americans associate with Indian food. I didn't like dal javel, the classic combo of lentils and rice. I didn't like things like biryani, rice and meat. I didn't like yogurt. I know, pretty bad. Throughout my kid years, basically the fundamental building blocks of our food culture were things I didn't eat. Well, Amit was always a very picky eater. This is my oldest sister, Amna. She's a lawyer, about 10 years older than me, quite tall, very measured with her thoughts, and also very interested in what other people are thinking. He knew what he liked, he knew what he didn't like, and he tended to like fancy foods. So there were some Pakistani dishes that I ate from childhood. Nihari was my favorite food for years. A spicy, briskety stew scooped up with naan and sprinkled with fresh ginger, lime, green chilies, and cilantro. Baya, a sister of Nihari. Mita paratha, bread fried up with sugar. The thing is, my mom would need a whole day of prep or hours in the kitchen to make those things. In addition to being delicious, they were special. Fancy foods, as Amna said. With the standard, basic, easy meat and potatoes dishes like lentils, chicken, anything beyond plain white rice, I felt an intrinsic rejection of them. Ahmed, who is the baby of the family and a very special member of the family as a result, um, you know, just wouldn't eat the food that my mom was cooking. And it was a constant frustration. So you were probably four or five. And one of your dislikes was leftovers. Like, you never wanted to eat leftovers. You could not handle something being microwaved from the fridge. I do not know why. This is my middle sister, Zanab. She's also a lawyer. The age difference makes her less like a middle sister and more like one of my three moms. She's a fierce caretaker and protector in our family. Z and I are both a bit louder, more fiery than cool-headed Amna. When I was about five, Zanab, who was in middle school at the time, had had enough of my neitherness. Dinner that day was a basic chicken salon. You'll hear me say the word salon a lot, If you don't share my background, you should probably think about the word curry, a spice sauce with a base of tomatoes and yogurt. But we actually never used the word curry growing up. And as a food writer, I almost never refer to any saucy Indian or Pakistani dish as curry. But that's another story. So I'm age five, leftovers for dinner, chicken salad, and I won't eat it. You were so used to having like perfectly warm food. And I think, like, it was sort of like, t- I was just, like, so annoyed. I was like, why does this kid get to just, like, do whatever he wants? He doesn't know any better. What the f-? I, like, remember being, like, pissed off. He doesn't know any better. Like, how? I'm not doing this anymore. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to trick this little kid. I'm going to trick him. Zanab came up with an absolutely genius idea that our family would talk about for years. I'm like, do you want to? Are you hungry? And you were like, yeah, I'm hungry. And I was like, gee, there's this new place in town. It's called Pakistani Chicken Hut. Pakistani Chicken Hut. My little five-year-old ears perked up. I immediately thought of KFC. KFC, we do chicken sandwiches right. And the hut reminded me of Pizza Hut. Call Pizza Hut Delivery and get a medium meat lover's pizza for $8.99. And so then I picked up the phone, pretended to dial, and I was like, hello? Is this Pakistani Chicken Hut? Yeah, okay. Um, I'd like to order one kid's meal, please. Make sure you include the toy. And please deliver it to our address. There was nobody on the line, and then they would order food. Then they would go to the kitchen, have a paper bag, those brown paper bag, lunch bags, put some of your mother's cooking in it. This is my dad, 
Dr. Waheed Akbar. An ad, which we had a lot of them, the toys from uh, the McDonald's children's bag. For example, like a Hot Wheel, a generic Hot Wheel, and put it in the bag. My sister, Amna, continues. I kind of forgot, too, that Hot Wheels were definitely one of the things from Pakistani Chicken Hut. Hot Wheels, if you're not a 90s kid like me, are these little toy cars about as big as the space between two knuckles. They weren't really the kind of toy you would see in a Happy Meal. Yeah, and that was also part of what made it precarious, though, because, like, you know, like, will he recognize this car? And it may make it up into, like, as if there was a delivery, and then one of them would go and ring the bell from outside the house. I would be like, oh, something's at the door. And then one of us would proclaim, oh, it's Pakistani Chicken Hut. <laughs> and I was like, oh, your food's here. <laughs> and you were like, what is this magic? I was, like, trying to figure out how do I make this kid eat? You thought it was, like, the coolest thing ever. I remember sitting in my bed with my exhausted parents next to me. My sisters running around the room giggling. My mom was especially amused because their ruse, it completely worked. I ate her chicken salin, this most basic dish that I usually required hours of convincing, hours staring at a full plate, arguments for the whole afternoon, and I ate it without making a peep. All because it was ordered from a made-up restaurant, Pakistani Chicken Hut. My mom, Ami as I call her, told the Pakistani Chicken Hut story so many times that it's become legend. Like all the other stories my mom told, Ami was a storyteller. She had wanted to be a journalist, but her dad believed she would get more stability and respect as a woman in the 60s if she was a doctor. But she never lost her interest in narrating her experience. Whenever she had a moment, she'd tell me idyllic stories of growing up in Rawalpindi, Pakistan, days spent reading books and playing in the yard with her siblings. My mother was the eldest of six, and many of her younger siblings followed her over to the United States. In many Pakistani families, the eldest child holds significant power and respect. My uncles and aunts always called her Rana Baji, Big Sister Rana. By the time of Pakistani Chicken Hut, my parents were comfortable, settled. My mother was able to take a little bit of time off after my birth while she worked tirelessly through my sister's childhoods. I asked my dad, Wahid Akbar, about those early days, and he said my mom, Rana, learned to cook only when she came to America in the 1970s. She didn't know how to in Pakistan. When they came here, they realized that if you have to have authentic Pakistani cooking, you had to cook it yourself. So my parents learned to cook with a small but growing group of Pakistani, Afghan, and Indian immigrants, calling home, sharing cookbooks, and making trips to the rare places you could find halal meat and Indian spices during that time because there was no internet, she would call her mother in Pakistan and get tips from her. Or you had to buy books. Also, she learned a lot and picked up different recipes from different people and, as you know, developed her own style of cooking as well. You see, Ami was a full-time doctor, but she insisted on Pakistani food at home. She'd arrive at six and have food on the table by eight or nine with the help of the family. She believed it was continuing on traditions not only from Pakistan, but from Panipat, the home her parents fled in colonial India during partition. Here's my sister, Amna. I think the main way um, that they inculcated pride, and it was specifically Ammi, was telling stories about you come from a family that builds institutions for religious knowledge, education, you know, empowerment of women that would be kind of like, you know, part of the framework um, and doing good works in a sense. 
Growing up, I saw my parents contribute to building mosques, soup kitchens, and community newsletters. They were activists on top of their full-time jobs. All right, so let's rewind to that story from the beginning. I think I understood that there was no such thing as Pakistani Chicken Hut. I never asked to go to Pakistani Chicken Hut. There was no world in which there was a Pakistani restaurant in Saginaw, Michigan, and we didn't go as a family. Part of being a feeder is finding tricks and dishes that make everyone happy, while finding little ways to make your own self happy. And for my mom, that was the occasional break and a trip eating out. That's how I got a taste for fast food in the first place. My mother was charismatic, and I loved the story she told. She made Pakistani food, people, culture, everything seem like it was the best place in the world. So I felt guilty for being a neither. I didn't like saying no. When you're the baby, that much younger than everyone, your only job really is to delight. And I was disappointing my family by not eating. When I asked my family for this story, why they thought I was so picky, I expected them to say that I was self-loathing or confused or that I was rejecting Pakistaniness. But I was surprised. They all just said I was picky, particular, that I wanted special food always. Chicken salad? No, that was just amjis, everyday stuff, the quotidian. So when they invented Pakistani chicken hut, this old food was made special. It felt good to say yes. It felt good to sell the scam. And I guess, you know, we learned something about him that the, that uh, he wasn't rejecting our mom's food because he didn't like it because it was like literally the same exact thing we were all eating. He was rejecting it because it was home cooked. But all these years, I've still felt guilt about not eating this food. You see, I was the American child, the one who didn't speak Urdu well, the one who never lived in Pakistan, only visited, the one who didn't eat with joy. These are the kind of things about me that confused my mother. Zanab explains. She was very spiritual, and I really believe that she was like, this is a, like, our ability to taste and all these flavors and all these food experiences is like a blessing from God. Let's go out there and experience that. My mother kept laying traps for me along the way, planting seeds in my head that food was a blessing and to try to turn me into an eater like herself, to have pride. She was the kind of mom who'd play Pakistani folk music like Gavali and explain the depth of the poetry and lyrics on a long car drive. She was my big sister, my protector, my uh, mother, basically. This is my mom's baby sister. I call her Nadia Khala. All my life, she was there looking after me, uh, watching out for me, protecting me, guiding me, always a source of strength. My aunt is a professor in pediatric hematologist and oncologist, another professional Pakistani woman in three generations of them. My mom's sisters are all mirror images of their own mom, tall, community-minded doctors with a talent for talking and laughing. Being an oncologist, I have too many surprises uh, that I have to deal with. So cooking is something that's very predictable, reproducible, and rewarding. You can have immediate, uh, you know, fruit to your uh, labor. Like her big sister, Nadia Khala didn't know how to cook when she arrived in the States. My mother Rana had come to America many years before Nadia Khala. So the little sister learned from the elder. I would ask her for recipes and she had 
a couple of recipe books that she told me to get. Mother Jaffrey's books, because she kept on telling me to get this, this, and she would mail them to me. Amongst our community, Mother Jaffrey is probably the most influential and famous chef of Indian cuisine in America. She's originally from New Delhi, but lived in the West. In the 70s, she popularized a lot of Indian cooking techniques amongst Americans and hosted a BBC series. While my family is from Pakistan, Jaffrey's cooking was close enough that it held a place of respect for my mother. My sister Zanab explains. Like there is that Mother Jaffrey book that has a cuisine from across India, and she bought that and she explored it. Like she picked recipes that sounded good to her, and then she would make them, and then she would rate them. Like, you know, you have that copy of her book where she writes like A++ or B- or whatever. Like, she has her own system of grading these recipes. Anyhow, anytime you visit the Osmani sisters, they'll put out a massive spread. When I have people visiting, when you are there, your father is there, your sister is there, my own kids are there, then yes, then I'm cooking a lot of dishes. My mom was the queen of this. Everyone came to our house for Thanksgiving, and she had her own specialities. So uh, there were certain uh, dishes that I always associate with her. She used to make chickpeas. Uh, That were her entire recipe, and not from anyone. I think she made Nihari for you all the time. Nihari, I'll remind you, is a long-simmered stew of beef thickened with flour and flavored with hot and aromatic spices like mace and nutmeg and chili. Like my mother, Nadia Khala is very attuned to her family's history. But the mind-blowing thing I learned from Nadia Khala during this story is they don't consider Nihari a part of our family history. She made Nihari for you all the time. Again, and not something that was innately something that was cooked in our family. But I learned from her. It was a dish from Lahore, where they went to medical school. Nihari uh, my, was never cooked in my household. You bought it, you know, from a restaurant. I began my Pakistani food journey with Nihari and Paya, these very difficult, special dishes that could literally not be made daily. When I ate those dishes, I was an eater. Even when I got my wish to get fast food, I was kind of always running around. I couldn't sit down. But with Nihari and Paya, I'd sit down and focus. They are foods that require devotion and both hands. And as I grew older, I started eating more Pakistani foods. I wasn't one of those picky eaters that picked up new aversions. They kind of slowly melted away over time. Around this time, my parents had acquired satellite television, and there were constantly the Urdu jingles of Pakistani-American restaurants like Kebab King ringing through our house. A real-life Pakistani chicken hut, in a way. By middle school, I started eating much more. My mother was immersed in her work and activism, so I ended up eating more fast food, ramen, junk food, really. I was no longer skin and bones. I was full-on chubby. But there was still a mental block on a large number of Pakistani dishes. But I can think of one moment in my teens where I became a full-on Pakistani eater. It was like I broke the handle off a faucet and couldn't stop the stream. That moment is the first thing I ever truly wanted to write about. Allow me to read you a sample from my blog, 2006. The blog post is fiction about a young South Asian family on the night where a guest comes over for dinner. I was probably 15 or 16 when I wrote this. Please understand, I am a better writer than this now. Probably. 
Ummi, I don't want to eat this. His shout reverberated through the meticulously decorated dining room. The boy's olive mocha skin tone played off of the rich, earthly tones of wooden cupboards and contrasted with the vibrant palette on his plate. Poultry colored crimson red and spinach and lamb colored deep green. The boy's mother, strained from a hard day at work and in the kitchen, was visibly stirred by his outcry. The dinner was far more elaborate than usual. A simple meat dish and some sort of grain was usually more than enough. But tonight, they had a guest. So, this was a piece of fiction, not intended as comedy, but unintentionally very funny to me now, and it was inspired by a real experience. The guest in question was Thomas. We went to middle school together, and we were tight, really tight. Probably my best friend in eighth grade. We had these big dreams of starting a band together. I haven't spoken to Thomas in nearly two decades after he left our hometown. But I came into contact with him for this story. I'll never forget that you made all of us try to read the Communist Manifesto in like seventh or eighth grade. <laughs> 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 <It's>, uh, <laughs> do you, you remember that? <laughs> I actually don't. That's mind-blowing. That's amazing. He, on the other hand, mentioned that he remembered me as wearing a t-shirt from a protest my sister had attended in favor of Palestinian self-determination. So yeah, we were pretty funny kids, I guess. Thomas and I especially loved going out to eat. Like, going to the store to buy food was, like, for some reason, like, a really, like, a big deal. Like, going to 7-Eleven or whatever, your instincts are like, oh, man, I'm getting so many calories at once. This is amazing. We had grown. We had changed. But I had to ask whether he remembered that fateful dish that turned me from a neither to an eater. Do you remember, like, ever eating at my house? Yeah. And I want to say it was, like, traditional uh, Pakistani food. But, like, specifically, I want to say it might have been, like, rice, some type of chickpea dish and bread, maybe something else. I remember while I was eating, just, like, mind blown. <laughs> like, uh, maybe, like, some type of rice pil- pilau or, like, pilaf type of dish or something. Oh! You got it. You got it. That's it. That's it. Unlike Nihari, Palau is fully and completely a family dish. It's rice cooked in a flavoring liquid. In our case, a broth of goat and layered in big whole spices like cinnamon, black cardamom, cumin, cloves, and about eight others. There are stories of my granduncles cooking huge vats of it when they were in school in India in the 30s and 40s. You may recognize its similarity to another word, pilaf. Ami often cooked Pakistani food for my friends. She'd ask them if they could handle spicy food, and if they could, she'd go pretty hard. Even if they said they didn't, she made a spread. But she really liked Thomas, so she made him palau, her special dish. Thomas didn't just like the food. He loved the food. Like, your mom's cooking totally changed my life. Compare it to the fast food we cherished so much. You get smacked with the salt and the, the saturated fat and the sugar, the flavor it is. But like those meals, like, you know, what your mom's cooking was like that. Those meals were like, it's almost more like like uh, things coming into focus, like a, a horizon opening up, a window opening up. And it's like, oh, man, this is a whole new level of experience. That day, seeing Thomas absolutely inhale my mother's palau, I remember picking up a spoon and serving myself a heap of it and eating plate after plate after plate of it. 
That night, Palau became my all-time favorite food. Talking to Thomas just reinforced how special that moment was. So you came over and she cooked her most important dish, meaning to say she's like, you know, my grandparents cooked this, my uncles cooked this, my great-grandparents cooked this. This is how they kind of think of it. So she, you come over and you have this palau and you are just like dying with joy over eating it. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I've never even tried this. So I remember you were enjoying it, and I looked at myself and said, this is so stupid. And I started eating it, and I went, actually, this is amazing. Why have I not eaten this before? And it opened up kind of a, kind of a, a I would say, a floodgate in me of, like, interest in my own food, I guess. Um, and I mark it. As, like, Bilal is my favorite food now, and I, I mark it from that moment together, actually. Sorry, I'm, like, crying a little bit. Sorry. Oh, no, dude. <laughs> that's, that's, I almost actually started crying, too, man. That's, that's, that's really amazing. Why did this change everything for me? Because Thomas and I were more like a mirror. I saw myself in him. Thomas comes from a background with a very involved immigrant mom as well. His dad is from the Midwest, but his Colombian mom was a huge influence on him. And by the way, he also has two much older sisters. There was definitely elements of perhaps growing up in Michigan where there was something of a culture clash and at times was perhaps somewhat alienating, but also at times it was perhaps like very affirming. I would consider myself extremely fortunate to have grown up uh, perhaps with like a very cosmopolitan uh, background. Our cultures were completely different, but we were both united by our admiration for our mothers, punk rock, and well, our lack of language skills, in my case, Urdu, and in his case, Spanish. Oh man, like I really, like I know that I really should know this and like really should be speaking this and I know that it would make my parents happy. Speaking to him, it's clear why we were so close. It felt like we were having the same conversations we had when we were young. I admire the person he's been since I've known him and talking to him again was like finding a hidden piece of myself. And if someone I admired so much could be open to a food experience like that, then I needed to as well. When we return... Ahmed forges his way to become an eater and a feeder. The family farmers at Pete and Jerry's Organics are passionate about raising happy, healthy hens that produce the best eggs. Here's Pete and Jerry's farmer, Judith Klein, of Rockingham County, Virginia. We've got scores of hens just outside, just pecking at any little bugs that they can find. And, and my son loves them. Like, he'll go out and walk up to me like, Mom, I want to hold one. Your son's little hands are touching eggs that are going into cartons, that are going across the country. There's got to be something that just feels so, so wonderful about it. It is very rewarding, just overall, taking care of the earth and taking care of our animals. We've got these bright orange yolks. And that just is such a testimony to how much access they have to going outdoors. Speaking of quality eggs, I know you have a family recipe for a blueberry cobbler that calls for using really good eggs. So it's called Mama's Blueberry Cobbler. Think back to something that just brings back the best memories. And this is exactly the feeling I get when I take a bite of this cobbler. Just gives this little crisp bite to the top of it. It feels like love, honestly. Find Judith's family recipe and more about her family farm at PeteAndJerry's.com. That's Pete and G-E-R-R-Y-S dot com.
At OXO, it's not just about creating everyday tools. It's about making them better, easier, and more enjoyable to use with better results. Take, for example, OXO's new sauce and gravy whisk. Senior product manager Benat Fakay explains what makes it different and better. When you're usually making sauce, everyone assumes that it's in some sort of roasting pan. But a lot of times people make a roux or a bechamel in a saucepan that has high walls. And with any other type of whisk, it's hard to get into the corners. So what we did was we developed a sauce whisk that has all of these wires together that you rub against the pan. So with this rounded edge here, you could get every single corner inside a high pan and not worry about missing areas. Better sauces start with better tools. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. And now, back to Amit's story. By college, I began to try a lot of foods I never had. Kebabs and biryani, pulao and firni. Not to mention I was open to cuisines from all over the world. If it's not pork or alcohol-based, I'll eat it, basically. I had become an eater. I filled out, became taller, began learning Arabic and Urdu. I was watching more Bollywood movies. And starting to appreciate the poetry of the Kavali music my parents always played at home. Summer of freshman year in college, I had a girlfriend. My mom did not approve. Ami was kind of fine with me dating, but she basically wanted me to marry a Muslim. She didn't care if they were Pakistani. She just believed it was important to keep the ethics and values that she had passed on. Anyhow, by dating this girl, I was not doing that in my mom's eyes. But my girlfriend was visiting my college dorm to hang out. She wasn't Pakistani, but she was vegetarian. So I asked Ami how she made her special chickpeas. She had no idea what for. She said, get a Shan Masala box and follow it. I was like, what? You want me to make it out of a box? Why can't I just get cumin, coriander, red pepper, turmeric? She was firm. No, you won't know what to do with that yet. You can do all that later. For now, get Sean. She didn't know it was for my girlfriend, but she wouldn't give me anything more. So I swallowed my pride, went and got Sean. Sean Masala, by the way, is kind of like if Betty Crocker met McCormick Spices. If you want to make a North Indian dish, there's a Sean Masala packet for it. Each box is exactly the same size and design, from the simplest seasonings for eggs and fruit salad to more complex dishes like biryani. It doesn't give you anything but the spices. According to my dad, by the time I was growing up, Sean was a frequent tool in the kitchen. I was surprised myself, and that's what made me realize how good those formulas are that Rana was using it. So I took the instructions from the back of the Sean box and made Jana Masala with it. And I said, nah, this is not a Mies Jana Masala, even though she herself told me she used it. So a new process began, learning to cook my mom's food. I begged her for her real Jana Masala recipe. And by the end of that summer, I had it. I went back to school for fall semester and taught all of my roommates. So almost every evening, the phone would ring at 6 p.m. or whatever, and I knew it was you uh, wanting to talk to your mother because you were in either starting a dish or the middle of a dish, and you wanted guidance from her, and she just loved it. 
because she was into cooking and I thought that was a very important part of kind of transmitting your love to your people who are close to you by making them a good meal that you were following that tradition the two of you were cooking uh, 400 500 miles apart I don't really remember calling every night but I do remember when I finally learned how to make pulao when Ami got sick Amna explains So in around December 2007 our mom was diagnosed with a recurrence of cancer in her brain and so it was pretty scary from the get go in part because cancer in the brain is in itself scary but also our mother was a brilliant person and her identity was very much based on how much in command she felt of her intellectual capabilities when she got sick my sisters and i moved back home to michigan and over 2 years my mother had her ups and downs for me and my sisters our priority was taking care of ami and getting the most out of our time with her to me ami's illness was really the time i learned how to cook and i was in a rush to learn because things weren't looking good i was home all the time i wanted ami to like my food so badly because well All my pickiness came from somewhere. I asked Zanab and Abu, my dad, about cooking during Ami's illness, and they said, "Mm. I remember <sighs> I don't remember a lot, but I remember that my children wanted to um keep her happy. Traumatic experiences and grief have that effect on you. But for some reason, Me and Amna, my oldest sister, we both remember cooking clearly. You know, there was a kind of question of like who's going to feed us and from what I remember or what I would assume kind of is like in the beginning Zanab was doing a lot of it. In our family, feeders had often been women, and my sisters found that to be a little unjust. So, at the family's lowest, I knew something had to change. I heard this criticism that as a boy, I wasn't expected to pitch in as much. And I said, "Okay, 20-year-old Amma should learn to feed. Amna like me found cooking during Ami's sickness a source of comfort. And so food and the kitchen became a kind of outlet or escape from the I don't know, the kind of like misery of being stuck at home because everyone's favorite person is dying. Ami was also a picky eater <laughs> like you. The cancer changed her taste. We were in a rush to learn and to make her feel better. Amna recalls this story where Zanab overheard my mom talking about tandai. Growing up in Rawalpindi, our grandmother would make tandai, which is kind of a pressed almond drink, when her kids were sick. And my mom, feeling vulnerable and losing her hair, was just wishing out loud she could have her mom's tandai again. So Zanab secretly went through the effort of researching, soaking the almonds, asking people for tips. She ends up making the tandai for Ami. And then of course Ami tasted it and was like this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. In fact, I do remember a uh, very heartbreaking for Zanab as I recall. My mother was a community leader. So while we were cooking to satisfy her and ourselves, we also spent a lot of time entertaining on her behalf. We'd make platters of tea, biscuits and snacks to serve guests. There's a whole ritual around hospitality and tea service in Pakistan, and I'd spend a decent amount of time sitting around. So I remember when I got sick of the guests, I'd sit by the tea station and open Ami's cookbook drawer and read Mother Jaffrey. I'd take Jaffrey's recipes to Ami and ask her advice. Should I make this? How should I make that? I took notes. 
And thankfully, I have some of them. From 2009, here's Ami's curry recipe, which she dictated to me at her bedside. It starts pretty good with a bunch of measurements of the base, yogurt, and spices, and basin, which is chickpea flour, blending them. And then it kind of goes off the rails. Add some water. Cook it on low heat, medium. After a couple of hours of cooking, check it is the right consistency. Make pakoras. Make sure there is baking powder and yogurt in pakoras. Darka. Garipata is the best. Piaz, zira, lalmerch. Now, all of that probably sounds extremely confusing to you, but I understand it. I can follow it, and I can make a delicious dish out of it. Rather than teach me specific recipes, Ami taught me techniques, strategies, ways of learning to home cook. I know how to tarka, I know how to make a spice mix, and I can even make palau. Even if she didn't validate my sisters, maybe she knew my ego was more fragile, and I felt that she gave me her blessing. And so did Abu. She was very proud of it. She felt that she had passed on some of the family traditions to you. In the kitchen, she left me with a parting principle. If I don't teach you how to do something, you can ask my sisters or you can consult Mother Joffrey. Ami passed in 2009, battling her cancer much longer than anyone expected. She was only 58 years old. I was 21. My sister Amna reflects on this. I think... Some of what <laughs> I feel is being unpacked for me through this conversation is that, like, your relationship to food is partly like a product of Ami. Like, I think Ami was particular about food. I always consider this a difficult, troubling event, her passing. But at the same time, I couldn't have asked for more. She had nearly died early in her chemotherapy treatment, but I got two more full years with her, and I learned to cook from her. I don't know if my mother knew what kind of journey she'd set me on when she told me to consult Mother Joffrey on all things Indian cooking, whether she knew I'd become a full-on Mother Stan. But I like to think she knew that Joffrey would guide me, that the connection would be more than just reading the recipes, but understanding the intent and meaning behind Joffrey's philosophy. Another little trick she pulled on me from the grave. So it's been a lifelong dream to interview Mother Joffrey. But when she said yes to being in the story... I was nervous. But there was really no reason to be nervous. It was comforting to speak to that person whose writing brought me so much solace during a hard time. I am Madhur Jafri. I'm an actress and um, cook. So, you know, I, I sort of feel funny talking about my mom only about her cooking because she was a complex woman who did a lot of different things. You were an actor as well, in addition to a writer. How do you feel like, you know, what is your like relationship to this role that I'm also a- a talking to you as, as the sort of mother of Indian cooking in America? No, I think I'm an actor <laughs> and a part of a cook. <laughs> I, I, my mother would never believe what I'm doing and neither would my father. They would all think, I, I am horrible. I'm not a good cook. I'm not a chef at all. Just call me a cook. Like my mom and her sisters, Joffrey had to call home and learn from generations before her. And in a way, Joffrey is like our communal auntie who came a little earlier than many of us. Nearly every Indian and Pakistani American I've spoken to about this story would mention that they inherited their mother's mother Joffrey books when it was time to learn to cook. I didn't think of that when I was doing it. And if I thought of it, I probably would have stopped dead in my tracks and said, I can't teach anyone that. 
But while Joffrey is famous for teaching Americans Indian dishes like chana masala and chicken tikka, the dishes that I love, goat balao, nihari, baya, are all more associated with my community of the Indian subcontinent. And in our conversation, Joffrey was most interested in those. I'll tell you the one dish that is the iconic, you know, we, the family holds on to, which is a yakhni goat balao. Um, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> she pumped her fist. Why did you pump your fist? Because I love it. And it's... Uh, uh, there were two kinds of Sunday meals. One was a pulao, or we had something very, very, I guess, Hindu, uh, which is kari chawal. She's described two very different poles of Indian cooking. Curry, which my mother taught me, is from the vegetarian tradition, a chickpea and yogurt-based dish. And then there's pulao, a decadent and rich meat dish. Those dishes I liked are all associated with Mughalai food, the food of the Mughal royal court. It's now been popularly associated with the Muslims of the subcontinent. Each person brings to their food, a different mixture of Indian zones, as we might call them. And your food, I'm sure, reflects the zones that your mother was influenced by. My mother and her sisters are very clear which foods they claim and which they don't. And Joffrey, like them, believes there is power to maintaining a tradition. My grandchildren eat everything. I mean, they're eating Mexican one day and um, Chinese another day, and they mix it up. They think nothing of mixing it up, all of these things. To me, each is a delight in itself. Japanese food is a delight. Mexican food is a delight. I don't mix it like the third generation. It's hard for me to, to look at that and think of it, of it as edible and having a clear origin of some sort that I recognize. Origin, history. These are the kind of things that my mother emphasized when it came to cooking. I asked for the most basic steps to cooking any gravy or salad dish. And it was the same exact theory my mom taught me. And a whole generation learned the same. Yeah, so you put your garam masalas first. I always put into hot oil. Then I brown the onions, slowly brown them. And then ginger garlic paste. You build up your base, then either you put little tablespoons of yogurt and mix it in, blend it in, or you don't, depending on what you're feeling like and how much energy you have. And then once you've got your base ready, you put your meat, you add more water and just let it cook through. And then you leave it on very low heat with the lid on. Just let it say, ah, <laughs> and then it's ready. That's the magic of Pakistani Chicken Hut. No exact measurements, no interstitial explanations, being able to read between the lines of the ingredients. That is what feeders do. Hi, Proof listeners. It's Bridget here. Now, did you ever find that ripe, juicy mango is slipping and sliding all over your cutting board when you're trying to cut into it? Or maybe the mango's just a little too firm. Well, today, my America's Test Kitchen colleague and friend, El Simone Scott, comes to the rescue, and she's going to share some amazing prepping tips with me. Hey there, El. Hey, Bridget. How you doing? I am doing great, but I'd be better if I didn't have to deal with slippery mangoes. I know. So first, you're going to cut a thin slice from the end of the mango so that it sits flat on the counter. Well, that's a good safety tip anytime you're dealing with wobbly food, right? Absolutely. 
And just to be safe, we're going to hold down the mango firmly if it isn't as ripe. Got it. So next, you're going to rest the mango on the trimmed end and cut off the skin in thin strips from top to bottom. Then you're going to cut down along each side of the flat pit to remove the flesh. And then you can cut the flesh as you desire. All right. Well, easy does it. And thanks, Elle. Go to mango.org slash proof for more tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. I cared always about continuing my parents' legacy, even if it wasn't the exact same way they did. In my conversation with Joffrey, she noticed how I was speaking about food in a completely different way than her generation of immigrants did. I was not ashamed of it. I cooked the way I cooked. If you don't like it, go away. But the next generation began to make room for doubt. So their own personal image got tied in with the food, which didn't happen in my generation. Now, I don't need anyone convincing me to explore Pakistani food. It's this strange little engine that's emitting some anxious smoke and chugging along on a path I don't quite understand. When I started cooking during my mom's sickness, I began reading not just Jaffrey, but cooking magazines, websites, blogs. I began picking up certain ideas from food media. Ideas like, there is nothing better than making and roasting your own spice mix. At this point in the story, I'm 24, and I've just moved to Boston for grad school. I have no meal plan, and I'm ready to become a feeder. I go to my Aunt Nadia's house. There's always a store with any household. So my kitchen cabinet certainly can't hold all the spices and the food things, grains, etc. that I need. So I have four racks in my basement that contains uh, backup supplies or things that I don't use on a daily basis. So I went shopping in her kitchen store. She gave me the basics, coriander, cumin, red pepper, turmeric, garam masala, and then she handed me a box. Probably a shan korma masala or something like that. I handed it back to her and said, I don't believe in pre-mixed spices. You don't use pre-mixed spices. You believe in authentic. <laughs> and she roared, Is Shah not good enough for you? Because it's good enough for your challah. It was good enough for your mom. We all cook with this. It's true. It's true. It's a genuine shortcut. <laughs> now, remember, Shah masala are those boxes that have pre-made spices that you can cook basically any North Indian dish with. It's funny because I was taught partially by my mother, partially by Joffrey, and partially by food media. I've developed a style all my own. My picky stubbornness means I'm unwilling to just pick up the shan masala box and make something that tastes like my mom's cooking. But I have to admit, the closest I've ever gotten to eating Ami's food again, it's when I use shan, specifically for the things she definitely used the box for. A char gosht, my sister said, Ami made it right from the box. It's a meat salon made with pickling spices. So I followed the box, and there was Ami's achar gosht on my plate. It had been about 15 years since I'd had it. But when I cook, I cook to honor Ami's legacy. Shan isn't Ami. Learning how Ami used Shan Masala is its own language that I didn't have the time to learn. Shan was a tool in Ami's arsenal as a feeder, but it wasn't our history, our legacy, our story. Yes, I overthink things, overcomplicate things. 
And maybe if I sucked it up and used Sean, I'd taste more of Ami in my food. But I want to know the history. But there's one person who doesn't care about that. And she's the person that I became a full-on feeder for, my wife, Salima. What I liked about Emma is that he had this, I remember this like crazy outrageous, like orange metallic, like low top bike that you used to like bike around like Michigan. Salima and I met in college and got together after Ami died. We've been married now for five years. When we were friends, we would go on these little sushi dates after our classes together, except they weren't really dates because we were confused Muslim kids. It's worth noting Salima's background is a little different from mine. Her dad is Ethiopian and her mom is Pakistani. She has fewer family in the United States. Listen to how we talk about my family's cooking. It's like nostalgia and lineage and like genealogy of food. Versus how she talks about her mom's cooking. So my mom, you know, she's an artist. You know, food is just, uh, cooking is another medium. As an artist, my mother-in-law's self-described style is funky traditional. Her always, her like famous catchphrase is to funk it up. So she's like, just funk it up a little bit. Like add a little, you know, something a little sour, add something a little sweet. You know, you just have to (laughs) make it alive, make it jazzy. So there's this history versus freestyle debate in our relationship. And it came to a head early when we were making chana masala. Essentially, um, chickpeas, kind of like in a stewed tomato spice sauce. We were cooking it together and um, I think Amma was making it. And one thing that my mom always did um, was add a little bit of ketchup to it because it added like a little umami flavor, a little salty, a little sweet, a little tart. Um, and so I remember I suggested, I was like, oh, Amma, put some ketchup on it. And the look of disgust that came from Emma's face and just the way like he like continues to laugh. Yeah, I can't stomach ketchup in my mom's chana masala recipe. And I don't really experiment that much with Pakistani food. I'm still trying to learn the techniques. I think because you have so many different um, voices of like, your mom, your aunts, like you reflecting on the thoughts of your mom and your aunts um, and your grandmother and everybody, you know, and how they make things and how you want to both honor that, but also try and do your own things. Going back to my sisters at the end, I asked them whether I was always this way. Zana reflects. Yes, 100%. But what we call it as an adult is being a foodie. Here's Amna. I think Amna takes delight and joy and has a kind of intellectual and heartfelt curiosity about food and its possibilities in all of its various dimensions, right? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are the different techniques? What are the ingredients? What are the traditions? What are the theories? Um, In a way that I just don't see anyone, I don't think anyone in the family has. My dad's take? I think you're an experimenter, Ahmed. That's what I was impressed about you, that you're not very fixated on South Asian food. You're ready to try other things, but then you're learning new techniques and you're mixing and matching. And I'm really impressed that the variety you're cooking, you're not limiting yourself to a certain type of cooking. You're creating a very good fusion, I would say a quality fusion, between South Asian cooking and American cuisine. But I wonder if fusion is the best word for it. 
whether authenticity is the best word for it. I'm not sure there was ever one American side and one South Asian side as much as a conversation between them. I had so much Pakistani in me and I had so much American in me and that was okay. All the ingredients were there. You just needed to put a lid on, simmer on low, come back, everything will be fine. Do you feel like when you eat my cooking, you see some of Ami's influence? Do you feel like the tradition is being carried on? Oh, definitely. Especially the classical. Even your pulao is incredible. Recently, you were just telling me that how you are doing some things differently because other people have given you some other hints, which are shortcuts. Rana was, it was so intuitive for her. Uh, but you to get to that level was, you know, was not easy. But to be as good at the cooking, you had to be much more precise and follow the steps. And there is no match to that palau. You do a wonderful job. I'm a feeder now. My dad's still an either tepid eater at best, but his approval is pretty much all I need. Thanks to Ahmed Ali Akbar for reporting this story. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Rickert is our producer. Terrence Johnson is our associate producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jashik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. Devin Usbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to Ahmed's family and friends for being a part of the story. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete & Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible, and Sika Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.